Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. In the past month, we saw the return of some of TV's best shows, so we wanted to remind you about a recapables feed, where our staff breaks down current episodes from your favorites like Game of Thrones, Killing Eve, and Billions. Also, make sure to check in each week to hear special one-off recaps on shows like The Bold Type, Very Cavalry, Cobra Kai, and more. So as you keep up with your top shows, tune in to the recapables feed each week on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is senior ESPN journalist Mina Kimes. She is on a variety of ESPN shows, from highly questionable to around the horn. She has recently almost gone viral because of a reaction on the New York Giants selecting Daniel Jones, number six. It gives you an insight into who Mina is hilarious and very knowledgeable about football because that's what she covers in her podcast, The Mina Kimes Show with Lenny, her cute little dog. And she always writes some big features in ESPN, the magazine and on the website. You know, being at The Ringer and a lot of the sports focus, Mina Kimes is a frequent guest on a lot of the Ringer podcast network. She's friends with a lot of the staff writers and editors. So she was very familiar with what we wanted to talk about. And she's because her insights are hilarious and well-informed. But what I wanted to talk to Mina about was sort of a different take. One was being Korean-American as a mix and what that is to her culture, her identity, and representation. Number one, that's few and far between in the world at large in media and definitely in sports. Plus, she covers the NFL. That is her focus. That is her passion. And she is as knowledgeable about football as anyone that I've ever met. And she sort of defies the stereotype. And I think that's a wonderful thing. So I've been a huge fan of hers. She does a lot of stuff with Pablo Estorre, another Asian American that's on ESPN. And for someone that grew up watching ESPN and sports in general, I've only really recently discovered how important representation is as we've had more Asians in the media. And I wanted to get her thoughts on that. And plus, we had a couple hot takes on how bad Daniel Snyder is and the upcoming NFL draft. We recorded this a week before the NFL draft, which took place in Nashville. And she was covering it diligently. And if you didn't catch it, you should catch some of her takes and clips because they were hilarious. Without further ado, I will shut the fuck up. And here is our conversation with Mina Kimes. I'm with, how do you describe yourself? Are you ESPN journalist or just journalist or TV ESPN. host? ESPN. Yeah, senior writer is my senior writer. title, but writing's only half of my job these days. Mina Kimes, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you've been to the Ringer <laughs> Studios a few times, right? I have, yes. Uh, friends with the NFL folks. Friends with a lot of people here. So I have been here. And we are talking in the room where they host the Game of Thrones podcast. And it's, it's uh, Talk, the Thrones. Talk the Thrones. Talk the Thrones. Well, it's weird because I feel like we should be talking <laughs> about dragons and White Walkers. But we met before. This was uh, at a, a mutual friend's wedding. Yes, in Copenhagen. In Copenhagen. That was incredible. 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 
and I was trying to remind myself of how overindulged and overserved <laughs> I was during that whole wedding. It's Copenhagen. It is Copenhagen. We also have another mutual friend, Alan Yang. Alan Yang, who was at the wedding, yes. yes. And who's been your podcast guest. He's been my podcast guest. We were supposed to do this podcast sort of together, and then Alan decided to do 14 projects this year. <laughs> <laughs> I think you may have mentioned that to me. Yeah. 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 He mentioned it like, hey, we should get me on. Like, you were the first name he brought up. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Wow. Really? Um, can I embarrass you? Of for course. A so, my mom, shout out to Sun Min, she meticulously documents everything I do. And you talked about my job, I, whether it's written or whether I'm TV, she is DVRing everything, taking screenshots, framing articles. And I told her, I called her yesterday and I told her I was doing this. And this might be the most excited she's been about me doing any, meeting anyone because my mom, like most Korean people, values the opinion of Korean people more than anything <laughs> in this world. And she's not sort of your stereotypical tiger mom in a number of ways, but one of the ways is that she's always, my whole life, put Korean role models or Koreans who succeed in untraditional fields in front of me. And in the past, she had... I think even sent me an article about you. Uh-oh. She sends me articles about like athletes, actors, musicians, whatever, which you know is not She's a, like a typical thing. A Korean uh, aggregator of news. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and she should have a blog. But she also she always gives me the same speech after she'll send me the article and she always says the same thing. Such a small country, such a great people. <laughs> Achieving so much. So anyways, I told her, and she then she was so excited. She also sent me an email because I said, oh, we might even get lunch. Inviting myself to lunch. And she sent me an email all about, she's like, here's some articles I collected. <laughs> Thank wow. you, Mom. And, and then in the email, she said, don't eat too loudly. You eat too loudly, which wow. is also a Korean thing, yeah. About eating in front yeah. of you. So. Sounds like a very Korean mom. Is that wrong to stereotype? Well, I would say yes. Although the thing about being excited about people doing unconventional things is maybe not the stereotype, right? Chefs, right. actors, musicians. Well, that's a, another weird athletes. thing is that being a chef is not supposed to be like the quote-unquote acceptable path for Korean people in general. Definitely not. But the world has changed for sure. Yeah. Did you grow up very Korean? Do you speak Korean? So I did Saturday school, the whole thing. I actually, as an adult, took Korean classes again because I wanted to sort of regain it. I am told by Koreans that I have the skill level of a two-year-old. Oh, that's like me. Are you? Yeah. But I, I go a little bit lower, that of a dog. Dog, <laughs> dog commands. Shulkamayo. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, you guys know how Koreans are too, where like I'll go to, a, when I lived in New York, I would go to a bodega and I would just say something and they'll look at you like you're fucking speaking alien language. Like, and I'm like, I know you understood what I just said in Korean. But Koreans will, they do not tolerate shit Korean. But you actually have the confidence to speak Korean to Korean people? Oh, no. Please. I have to work up. Like, if we go to a restaurant later, you'll see. I'm very afraid to do it. Yeah, I can't do it. I just really? tell people sometimes, like, no, I'm Chinese. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> no. Sometimes I want to say that, but I just tell people my Korean's terrible. And I don't even say that in Korean because I could say it in Korean. I just very clearly explain everything in English. So they just will never bother me ever again to speak in English. It's way worse for you being full Korean too because half Koreans, you guys know, even attempting makes me a goddamn hero Mm. in their eyes. 
Oh, like um, I have a Korean flag tattoo on my shoulder. Daeguki. Oh, God. See, even speaking Korean on a podcast. It gives me chills. Anyways, I was at a wedding with a bunch of Koreans and I, you know, like a table full of ajumas saw the tattoo and they almost gave me a standing ovation. Because wow. they were like, you chose us. You could have gone either way. I don't see an American flag tattoo. So the bar is a lot lower for Hapas. Yeah. Well, sometimes I, I grew up and I was like, man, it would have been so much cooler to be half. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up most of my life being like, man, I wish I was white. Mm. Like my brother, older brother and I were like, this sucks. <laughs> It sucks. I mean, we grew up in Northern Virginia too. And it was like… Really? Uh, yeah. I know that. Yeah. Whereabouts? McLean and then Vienna. Okay. Yeah, I guess yeah. I dropped a Centerville reference really… In yeah, my cousins live there. And I moved down to the suburbs where in Centerville was literally still farm. Okay. Land. Wow. And it's totally not now. It's like rows and rows and rows of suburbia. But actually, there's a lot of Korean people in Northern Virginia. A ton. ton. In, in that zone, yes. there's a lot of Korean spa. Have you been to Spa World out there? My or? mom has. <laughs> can you do the towel thing? That's a true it. test of Koreanness. If you can roll your hair up into a make a little towel. Do you like Korean spas? Uh, mm, how do I answer yeah. that question? It's loaded. I know. I'm, I'm just gonna go out and say like I, I can't do it. Really? It's too too much. Especially on the the men's locker room, it's just too much. I hate public nudity. Yeah. I'm like really not comfortable in my own skin. But I like it when you get to once you put on like the orange prison uniform right. and the, then I'm cool. Yeah, I, I think I've been traumatized too much in Korea in like playing golf and the locker rooms there are pretty much like spa locker rooms and it was just too much. It's too much. You know, when you go to locker room and you see that guy or girl just too comfortable naked. Oh, yeah. Everyone in Korea just seems to like take on old. that persona and I don't get it at all. It's just too weird. Is it like, I didn't know, so do the old Korean men, and, and if you guys have spent time in Korea, you know they wear the utility vests. You, you know the guys I'm talking about. Yeah. They're just letting it hang out. Yeah. Strutting I, around. And I think nudity in Korea is a very different thing. I think it's actually very similar to Scandinavia where mm. it's just like, if you're in a sauna or yeah. a steam room, it's okay. Like, that's just bonding. Doesn't matter, right? <laughs> Everyone's naked. That's fine. Oh, my God. If I'm in a gym and the towels are small, I'll, like, stitch five towels together <laughs> to make a robe. Like, I am not at all comfortable <laughs> naked. I hate it. Yeah, well, that was just uh, the weird thing growing up Korean. I, I just never quite fit in with Korean culture. And as much as I tried to fit in with the culture that I grew up with, uh, which was predominantly white, I would say— my brother and I would always say, like, man, it would have been so cool if one of our parents wasn't Korean. <laughs> Dude, my, so my dad's white, and he was more of a tiger mom than my mom. So my mom was the one like, hey, look, David Chang or whatever. Well, I was older by then. We're not that far. But it, she would be like, I don't know, Chang Ray Lee or something. Like, a musician. My dad, meanwhile, was like, have you gone to SAT prep yet? So being half white, it depends on the white parent, I'd say. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's funny to hear you say that though because like part of the reason I got this tattoo was because I wanted people to know I was Korean. Right. So because when you're half, people look at you all the time like trying to figure out what you are. Have you spent any time in Korea? A lot of time, yeah. A lot of time. How so? So my mom has family there. So when I was growing up, we would go there and hang out with them, do tourism stuff. But actually at ESPN over the last few years, I have gone to Korea three times for stories. Wow, very and cool. turned it into like a boondoggle and stayed there and hung out with my family and stuff. But yeah, I did two esports stories in Korea and then a baseball story. Very cool. When I was there in 95, I did the Yonsei program. 
I was a freshman in college, and it was the first time I had ever been to Korea. And really, I was shocked at how mean they were to me. <laughs> Koreans are really mean. Really mean and ruthless. And like, you know, how many is across the street? I remember this woman making kimchi. And she literally started yelling with her kimchi-soaked hand across the street, gyopo. And she just started like cursing at me oh, no. and, and like something, something, gyopo, oh. something, something, gyopo. And I'm like, what, what's going on? Yeah. And gyopo means foreign-born. And it really was from the older generation. It was like we were the sellouts, that mm. we were foreign-born and we had cheated them somehow. Yes. That was more than one occasion gyopo mm. was thrown at me and I went to— High school, I went to like a private school where there were a lot of Korean kids that were boarders and they were not very kind to me. My cousin was very Korean. He beat the shit out of me because I would not <laughs> be respectful to the Korean culture and the older guys that Which were there. Which is the thing in Korea, for those who don't know, the seniority is everything. It's everything. What, whether it's in, a, I imagine the kitchens are the same there, I don't know, but in sports, in baseball, in the offices, in the chai, but whatever, in the family, if somebody's even like six months older than you, you're their bitch. Like, that's just how it works in Korea still today. Yes. And being the youngest of four kids, I had to be the lowest person yeah. on the totem pole. And that sucked. But then I was like, <laughs> wait, everything I do in Korean culture is about respect and being honorific, which I understand. But like, if you are not perfect at it, you get punished pretty <laughs> pretty harshly. Yeah. So I never warmed to that. I just thought it was incredibly stupid. Huh. Is it the same now? Do you feel like embraced? I mean— like what I was saying earlier, there's nothing Koreans love more than other successful Koreans, so— I'm a weird self-loathing Korean. <laughs> That's actually just a Korean. Yeah. That's a redundant <laughs> phrase. But, like, did you have any issues with the honorific system? Um, like I said, my family was pretty unusual. My mom was pretty unusual. She's pretty unconventional. She's really cool, if that's not obvious. So, aside from telling me not to eat with my mouth open and be loud. So— our family just didn't really embrace that. And then going to Korea as a half Asian is just such a different experience. Like, yeah, people treat you like a foreigner, but again, they don't really view you as betraying the culture in any way. Now in Korea, you know, plastic surgery is like rampant there, as people know. And people get the eyelid surgery, the double eyelid surgery to make them look half Asian. Like you see people walking around Seoul and especially in like some of the ritzier neighborhoods with eyes like me because it's such a common procedure there. It's almost fetishized to look that way. So I think my experience of the country is probably really different from yours. Yeah, seems a little different. <laughs> I just had a lot. I didn't get my of, ass kicked. Yeah, I got my ass kicked. I literally got my ass kicked. Do you have a lot of Korean friends? I did on Sundays, you know, going yeah. to church. And uh, there were some in school, but for the most part, I didn't really have too many Korean friends. Okay. Did you? No, but— I didn't live in areas with a lot of Koreans most of my life. So it wasn't really an option for me outside of my family. And I didn't go to Korean church with my mom. Well, actually, sometimes I did have to go, which was the worst. Is your mom religious? Yeah, yeah. And she does Korean church, the whole, you know, she's but your dad, no. You know, he's like white person religious. <laughs> but my mom would go to like Korean church and regular. She wow. doubled up, which a lot of Korean Americans do. And we would sometimes have to go to the Korean sh church and not speaking Korean. I would just be sitting there like, bored out of my mind. So I made a few Korean friends through that. But we lived in—I lived all over. My dad was in the military. And we didn't live in a lot of—other than when I was really young, we lived in uh, L.A. for a little bit in San Pedro. There just weren't a lot of Koreans in most of the places I lived. Yeah, I, I didn't get to travel around that much. So I was—I thought Northern Virginia was the world at large <laughs> for, <laughs> for the most part. 
But um, yeah, I, you know, being Korean was not something I ever embraced. And then it's funny, at the age of 41, it's something that I'm more comfortable in than ever before. I think my entire life, it was to run away from it. And mm. now, somehow, even though I'm not comfortable with it, and I'm not comfortable with Korean culture at large, many yeah. things, huh. the one thing that I can relate to is food. Okay, so that was a connectivity for you. Yeah, that's it. And the more I understand that, the more I'm like, oh, there's a lot of things. And then, you know, it's funny. It's like there's a significant moment that I never really spoke about. I just spoke about it the other day for the first time. I spent a lot of time in Japan because my grandfather was very Japanese because essentially, like, he was brainwashed to be. And I had an affinity for all things Japanese and still do. But when I was in Wakayama in 1999, Jesus Christ, makes me feel so old. Yeah, Isaac was four. (laughs) Fuck. Like, I've never really spoken about this. In the newspaper, there was um, all this talk because they had uh, vandalized the Korean memorial in Hiroshima. And I'm like, that fucked me up. Yeah. Because I thought, oh, if I'm in Japan, at least, like, I can't be hated by Koreans. And the racism from Japan didn't, like, quite register to me. Oh, really? So you weren't aware? Because this no, I is was a, a whole yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I was Korean, a, Japanese thing. I was aware, but, like, I almost, like, put blinders on okay. intentionally. And that's when yeah. I was like, whoa, what yeah. the fuck is going on? That's a beyond the scope of yeah, this beyond, podcast. Beyond the scope of this podcast. But so you felt, like, tribal for the first time. It's been an unraveling process of that. Still not tribal, right? Because there are a lot of things about Korean culture I abhor. I really don't enjoy it. But the art, the Han, quite frankly, I embrace fully. (laughs) Embrace the Han. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I definitely have that side of me as well. I can relate to the notion of feeling more Korean than ever when I felt like when I encountered racism. Not towards me, man, because I don't really get that. But when people would say things to my mom, Mm. I remember, this is the weirdest story, but I remember my soccer team going to a pizza hut when I was nine. And there was a thing kids used to do in school where they would pretend to be like Asian people and pull their eyes back. And there was like a weird little game. And I remember they were doing that. And my mom was there. And I was like, man, I'm a nine-year-old girl and I'm about to punch these. Like, I, I don't know. I was just so angry with them. And I think sometimes it's not until you're like attacked or challenged or feel that sort of, oh, I'm not, I'm not the insider. I'm the outsider here. Right. That you start to relate to that side of your culture. Yeah. It's been a weird run. We talk about this sometimes. We've talked about Steve and I feel like I joke with Dave Cho. We know most Korean men and women that have chosen not to become doctors, lawyers, or Mm -hmm. scientists of some sort. And you are our first... Senior journalist, writer from ESPN. Wow. We haven't had a Korean journalist. Have have you had Korean women before? We had Chloe Kim. Oh, oh, God. Well, (laughs) (laughs) not going to talk that. All right. Glad I asked that question. Um, There aren't a lot of us. There aren't a lot of Asians in sports media. Can we talk about that? Sure. Representation more important than ever. I grew up watching that guy, Michael Kim, who used to be a local oh, yeah. sports broadcaster for like Channel One or something in Northern Virginia. And he was on ESPN News and he's not around anymore. And he was the first person yes. I was like, whoa, that guy is on ESPN. And yeah. I, I would normally just gravitate to anything he did because I was like, oh, that's, I don't know why, but that's a guy that I need to watch. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. No, there's very few of us. I mean, the circle gets smaller, right? There's very few women. Then there's very few Asians. 
I don't know. I, I, I'm always nervous to say, like, there's not any, because I, I might be forgetting about people, but Asian sports media, there's not that many of us. We have our own little mafia. We have our text groups. We have our hangs. Pablo Torre is one of my closest friends at ESPN. We went to your restaurant yeah. the other night. It was in LA. I'm sorry um, I missed you guys. It was good. It reminded me a lot of the food I ate growing up, but that's a whole, when my mom would just dump cheese on shit to make me eat it. <laughs> and she's I a great cook? It. She's a good cook, yeah. And I grew up making stuff with her, like Mondo and stuff, but she would often be like, okay, you know, here's fried rice or whatever. Oh, okay, I'm going to melt cheese on it to make you, because you're a child. And I kind of had weird evocative flashbacks to <laughs> when I was eating with it, when the waiter came out and was like, I was like, oh my God, this is like, I don't know if that was, that was like That was the goal. Head at all. Was, yeah. but, and I love Korean bar food, you know, like cheese corn and all that gross shit. I love it. But anyway, sorry to derail this. But um, yeah, it's a small group. And By the way, the, the commercial you and Pablo did or the— Whatever you. Oh, guys the cold were, open. The cold open. Yeah. No, or what was it? The the shrine to Asian <laughs> American athletes was just the funniest thing I'd seen Thank in a long you. time. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's like this in your community, but in sports, Asians are very cognizant of other Asians. Like when we find out Kyler Murray's part Asian. The Wait, tech, he, the tech, he is, dude. Dude, I didn't know this. Korean. Right now, it's happening. Now, Kyler Murray just carved lo- out a different part of my it? brain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, I will, I will fight for him to the death. I, I like Kyler Murray. Him. I liked him because he was short and he was fighting against like people that say he can't play ball because he's not tall enough. Now you love him. I love him. He's your everything. Yes. I that everyone on that shrine, I will fight to the death. For, right. <laughs> um, and yeah, so. Um, Is that guy on the Knicks who's like the quarter Korean? Yeah. God, who's on the Knicks? Uh, Alonzo Cheer. Cheer. Yeah, he's Asian. Yeah, there are all these secret Asians in basketball. There's a ton. Really? It's awesome. No, stop. We have to go over the secret Asian in basketball. Who else? Oh my God. Anderson is Asian. Uh, Kyle? Kyle? Jordan Clarkson is Filipino. I got to root for Jordan Clarkson now? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me, honestly, Korean is a little— I kind of— You can't root for everyone, right? So I'm like, ah, it's cool. He's part Filipino. But, like, you got to really, like, pick your battles, I think. So, yeah. I always— When, like, Korea and the U.S. would play in soccer or anything— What what would happen there? I root for Korea, which is— Well, there's enough people rooting for the U.S. It's like my mom would say, such a small nation, such a great people— We've been through so much. Such a small name. Um, and really, Korea has been through yeah. so much. And no one really knows about it except for Korean people. <laughs> yeah. Korea is amazing, man. Like, to go through what they went through, that country, and then to modernize that quickly. And there's a lot of issues with the culture, especially with women and stuff. But it's freaking amazing. Yeah. Not to derail the podcast, but <laughs> if I, you could do a whole season about how— Misogyny in Korea. And I so. learned what misogyny was from spending time Korea. in Korea. Or you could learn about it in sports too. It's another way. I did one of my stories that I did in Korea on esports was about this Overwatch player. I don't know if you guys are into uh, Overwatch at all. Named Giguri, who it was the only female professional for a while. She's a teenage girl, and she was so good that people thought she was cheating. Like the male video game players were like, "There's no way a girl could." So they made her stage a public demonstration to prove she was actually. They didn't make her, but. She was like trolled and stuff into doing it. And through that story, I ended up exploring sort of the feminist movement in Korea right now, which is still very nascent and it's tough. It's not like here. I just recall when I was in Korea in the mid-90s, women weren't allowed to smoke cigarettes in public. That's wild. It's fucking crazy. You know, at least like, still like, a lot well, of it was stuff legal, like that. It was like they, it was so frowned upon. So anyway, <laughs> so much Han. Um <laughs> Not enough representation 
but you are maybe the only person that I know that's in sports media on TV and writing, and that's amazing. And you also cover the most bro sport possible. The NFL. <laughs> Football. Dude, I, and I, I just, I love it. I love it so much. It's so, speaking of problematic, forget Korea's treatment of women. It's the most problematic sport. There's so many problems with it. And I still, like, every Sunday inject it into my veins. I just love it. How to? Do, <laughs> is that like? <laughs> how does that happen? You seem like incredibly rational, well-adjusted person. Thank you. Then how do you rationalize the love of this insane sport that's NFL? Because I am the same way. You love NFL? Oh my! Yeah, come on. I know you love the draft too. That's like I, I'm Dude. fucking Mel Kiper. Do you know who feeds Mel Kiper information? I do. <laughs> uh, we're doing a three-day draft show in Nashville. You should definitely tune in. Last year. I had a meltdown when the Giants took Saquon. Like, I was like, thought they should have taken a quarterback. I had a literal meltdown on camera. I love the draft so much. All three days, I watch it. I just love it. It's my favorite. You must have been very excited when they decided to spread it out. Prime time. Oh, yes. Even on Sunday, like the sixth round, you know, you're going to like the seventh hour of the day. I'm still glued to the television. But you asked me how I, why, I guess, yeah. why? Why football? My dad was a huge Seahawks fan growing up. And I sort of learned at his knee to love the sport. And I've just always loved it. I, I've only been in sports for five years now. I was an investigative journalist before that. But even then, I would just still spend 12 hours a week watching football on football message boards, just out of control. So after college, you knew you wanted to be a journalist? I did. I... Mostly knew I wanted to live in New York, and I had an English major, so I wasn't really qualified to do a lot of stuff. And I had interned at a Fortune magazine, and they offered me a job out of college, so that was my first job. I wrote about, like, Wall Street and investing and stuff. And were your peers like, why don't you just enter Wall Street? Is that something that even crossed uh, your mind? I mean, that's definitely what most people where I went to college, like, ended up doing. But no, I think it was a cool job. People saw it as a cool job. The fact that I had a job coming out of college was pretty cool and got to live in New York. I never thought I would be in sports. How did that transition happen? Were you like, I have to no. cover the drafts one day? No, not at all. I think that's the thing about representation, too. If you don't really see people who look like you doing it, sometimes it doesn't even enter your mind that it's a possibility. And it didn't enter my mind that it was a possibility. So that we can only hope that, but you, know, you But you love sports. I loved it. So, yeah, so I was spending all my free time. And then I want to say around 2000, after Seattle won the Super Bowl— which is like how I divide my life before and after <laughs> the Super Bowl. It's my other tattoo. Um, <laughs> On her right arm, there is a— It's a, yeah, 48. Is 48? Yeah, my brother and I had a pack that if they ever won, we would get them together. So they won, so we're like, all right, fuck, guess we got to do this. Then my dad rolls in the day of, and it's like, I'm getting one too. So my brother and I had these like kind of subtle, it's just black— Roman numerals. My dad got a full fucking Seahawks logo on his arm. Day of decision. Full color. It's so crazy. Anyways. Sorry, that was a tangent. So, uh, yeah. And after the Super Bowl, I wrote like a personal essay about loving football. Why I loved it. And um, some people at ESPN saw it. And they were like, hey, it seems like you would be interested in doing this. So they reached out to me and the rest was history. And what was that call like? Weird, because it wasn't like, again, it wasn't like my dream. And um, also, I don't know. I mean, it seems like you've been kind of doing your thing for a while, but <laughs> it was a career change because you spent all your time building equity, sources, expertise in one thing. And then I was 30. So maybe 29 or 30. 
it was scary to jump careers to something I didn't, I knew about sports, I knew about journalism, but I didn't know how to do sports journalism. It was a freak out moment? Not until I started doing TV and radio, because that how, I truly had no clue how to do. And so you thought you were just going to— Be a writer. Writing? Yes, which I had been doing, so. When was the first offer to be like, hey, Mina, I got this idea. You could be on like— Podcast you know. or whatever. Yeah, yeah so my, I have a friend, Bill Barnwell, who writes about football, and I'd been friends with him for a couple of years. He started having me on his podcast. Other people were like, oh, you seem to like talking about football. My first radio gig in ESPN, a lot of people don't know this, was doing fantasy football radio. Wow. So I was like a expert. So I would do that every day, Sunday for like five hours, giving like fantasy football advice. And that's kind of the, a launching pad. You know, it's kind of training wheels. And to you, do some you were doing the homework. Oh, yeah. I would come in with like 50 pages of, because fantasy, you really need to prepare because that's, it's stats. It's very specific stats too. It's not, do you do fantasy? Unfortunately. It takes over my life. If people only knew how much time I dedicate to fantasy. Dude, let's get on a text chain. <laughs> uh, my, I have no one to give advice to anymore. Yang and I were in a baseball league for a while. Basketball. Uh, yeah, I could talk a lot about fantasy. I try not to talk about it because Good, I don't— Yeah. Because, like, I think if you tell people you're really good at fantasy and if you're a chef, it's like telling someone you're a scratch golfer or something. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? There's also <laughs> nothing worse than being the person at the bar who's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, my fantasy team. Like, fuck that guy, yeah. right? Nobody wants to be no. around that guy. So it's like a weird thing you can talk about in text groups. You can devote hours of your day to it. But when you talk about it in real life, you seem like a douche. Especially when you do fantasy like I do and you merge it with gambling. <laughs> <laughs> the best fantasy players are gamblers and vice versa. So it takes over my life. So like you sort of had this dream job that yeah. I was like, fuck, how'd you do this? I know you want to trade. I would love you know how many days, every day I wake up thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. I say this, I've said this for 16 years. So I, I will always be doing the restaurant business, but it yeah. doesn't mean like I don't want to do other we stuff. You can trade. I can make mandu. That's about it. I can make a pajan pretty good, but that's about the limit for me. And then you can give sports takes. Do you have takes? Unfortunately, I have too many takes. You just really? got to like, I don't know what to say right now though. What do I say? Well, who, which football team do you prefer? I hate Dan Snyder. Washington. Got it. Okay. Yes. Give me a hot take about the Washington football team. If the Washington Redskins, if they were any kind of organization in, in your field, if you can imagine, they yeah. would be the worst organization. They'd be the joke. So I have to always remind Redskins fans because they're in a bubble. We are the equivalent of the Donald Sterling era Los Angeles Clippers. Yeah. People forget that, right? Because yeah. they lose sight of like the horribleness is just so normalized. It's so fucking terrible. And I do know information on the whole bidding process for Snyder. None of this could have happened. The Lerner family could have owned the Washington Redskins. And Snyder, man, I hate that guy so much. Do you want my Washington take? Please. I'm trying to like keep it reined in. But Th I have not, not That's not how we do though. Like you got to let that fire fly. <laughs> if we're, we're going to trade jobs and I'm going to make shitty Mondu for people— you can't bring the shitty man well, I mean, takes. Listen, like last year, what the fuck were they thinking? They hire yeah. the worst people. Yeah. What moral compass do they have? Number one, they hire dudes that beat their wives, guys that commit crimes, and they have no conscience at all about their role <laughs> in Washington, D.C. Turn it society. up. Turn it up, Chang. So, and Daniel Snyder is just a fucking horrible person. We have fortune cookies as a joke at a restaurant in D.C., and for a while, they all said fuck Snyder on the back of them. So mine is uh, just sportsy. They should trade for Josh Rosen. I've been following those rumors. Here's the thing. I want Josh Rosen to go somewhere else. 
<laughs> and I believe the best way, if you're a real Washington Redskins fan, I've been saying this for a long time because I try to do a, like, I know Snyder knows this because I try to do a, a joke fundraiser to buy the Washington Redskins and to have an ownership structure like the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, Daniel Snyder will never, ever sell the team. But, fuck, I, I got so angry. I forgot what the fuck I was just talking about. But you, so it sounds like you almost hate your team so much you don't want Josh Rosen to end up there <laughs> yes, because want, he deserves better. Actually, he deserves better. He deserves a place where they're going to structure an environment that's going to be nurturing and challenge him and he can be great because I think he's getting the raw deal in the Cardinals. Totally. By far and away. And, and what I remember now, if you are a real Redskins fan, if you really truly care about Joe Gibbs and <laughs> all the glory days, you have to root against them. Oh, so that is a hot take. If you love them, you have to love them. I tell them this go. to every Redskins fan. You're not a real Redskins fan. <laughs> it's true. It's like Daniel Snyder will only sell the team if it loses value and if it is in the tank on merchandise sales and all these things because the Washington Redskins are always considered a valuable franchise because stupid Redskins fans buy all the they damn— They keep it going. They're still supporting it. Yeah. yeah. Come on, people. If you truly love the team, you have to hate the team is the, the most Han-driven take I have ever heard of in professional sports. So for a long time, this has been going on for quite some time. Ever since we had Jeff George as a— We fucking Jeff George as a starting quarterback for like a season. <laughs> Danny fucking Werfel. I could go on and on and on. How did the RG3 era treat you? Did you get like— It was Bitcoin. Was your love renewed? RG3 yeah, but, was Bitcoin. But it was Bitcoin, but were you buying that Bitcoin? Were you like, were you watching that 2012 playoff game against Seattle? Like, you know, you had to bring that up. Your fandom, your, the, your, the Seattle CX might have actually ruined RG3's career. FedEx Field ruined RG3's <laughs> career. That was a non-contact injury. And I remember watching it and being like, Screw this team for letting this field exist. He should have stayed in, or we could have just played Mark Brunel for another 10 years. Oh, Mark God damn. We are the worst you've franchise. You've been through a lot. You have been through a lot. You have had, outside of the Patriots, like a paradigm of consistency being a Seahawks fan. I mean, we only have one Super Bowl, and it took a while, hence the tattoo. But yeah, you know, there's been rough patches here and there, but really in the 2000s from Hasselback. Until now, it's been pretty successful. It's good mm. for me. My wife is from Seattle. Oh, really? Her whole family, they're massive Seahawks fans. Really? So it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard for me. <laughs> At least they're not divisional rivals or anything like that. That's but hard. yeah, like I love sports so much. I think in sports analogies. Okay. If you work for me, like I know this because I talked to some sous chefs and they're like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? <laughs> like, what are you saying? Like, it's it's third and eleven. Like, no, no, nothing about that. It's like I literally try to pattern my restaurant group after a um, sports franchise that wins all the time. So you're the Patriots. I love the Patriots. Like, do you try to run it like the? Are you screaming, "Do your job"? And- I do say that a lot, but that has nothing to do with that. <laughs> but like, if you look at the Spurs or you look at the Patriots and you can hate them all you want, there is some pattern of consistency about how they excel. And the same thing, like when I was in the Masters filming whatever we did down there, I literally was like, oh, this is like the Patriots. This must be like the Spurs. Everything was so goddamn organized and efficient, but not efficiency to be lazy. They were efficient so they could work more. Mm. Right? And I was like, yes. that's the shit you want. So you do you have a Belichickian managerial style? I love him. <laughs> do you, but, but do you, like, are you actually like that? 
I don't know if I'm like that, but have I read everything that's ever been written about Bill Belichick? Absolutely. I you know, his players— I've even read his dad's book on scouting. Really? <laughs> I bought that book. Yeah. His players actually—I mean, I've met a lot of NFL players who actually like playing for him because just from a managerial standpoint, they've said, he's not trying to be our dad. He's just—you go to work, you do your job. He doesn't—it's not personal— there's no familial touch necessarily, but some people kind of like that. They like to kind of compartmentalize work and life, and they like that environment that's so structured. Yes. And I, that's what you like. Because I'm not that person myself, but I yeah. know that I've become that person because I know when you can have a group of people running within that framework, you can win. Yeah. And I like fucking winning. That's my, that's my addiction. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I relate to that too. I don't think this is necessarily a Korean thing, but I really just like straightforward communication and I don't want to like fuck around at work. And so I think Seems actually— I, Korean. I, I, Korean. <laughs> 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 oh, I was just telling uh, Fantasy, Sean Fantasy is editor of The Ringer, we're getting work done on our house and— my husband and I are super yin and yang. I'm like the bad cop in that I don't want to have a 45-minute conversation with the person who I just want to be like, okay, we're going to do this. All right, it's done. It's done. It's done. And when they come to the door to do stuff, they're so visibly disappointed when it's me and not my husband because I'm, I don't want to have, I'm just not, I just want to get it done, you know? And I would think they would do, too. Do, do your job. <laughs> do your job. I'm like, you, why do you want to have a 45-minute conversation with me? Don't, I'm not interesting, but that's a whole other thing. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. Today's Day Chang Show is also brought to you by 23andMe. This Mother's Day, celebrate what makes mom special with personalized genetic insights on her health, traits, and more. A 23andMe plus Ancestry Kit is the perfect gift. And for a limited time only, 23andMe is taking $30 off their health and ancestry kit until May 13th. With 23andMe's traits report, mom can learn her DNA influences, her facial features, taste, smell, and more. Plus, with over 125 personalized genetic reports that feature information on traits like genetic weight, caffeine consumption, and sleep movement, she can discover how her genes may influence her health. This is the most comprehensive genetic ancestry breakdown on the market. I love getting 23andMe as a gift for all my friends and relatives. It's hilarious because of all the different traits and sort of patterns that we may or may not realize. 
So this Mother's Day, get $30 off 23andMe's health and ancestry kit at 23andMe.com slash Majordomo. That's 23andMe.com slash M-A-J-O-R-D-O-M-O. Again, that's 23andMe.com slash Majordomo. Offer ends May 13th. And now, back to the show. I think in a world of sports, so uh, whenever I get a chance, I've seen you on TV. Like, I rarely get the time to actually sit down and watch TV like I used to. So it's either on social media or something on ESPN. But I have long dreamed of being just like, yeah, how do I, how do, I do sports? <laughs> you can come do my job anytime. Oh my God, that would be amazing. Which aspect, do you like the giving takes? Do you like the debate? Would you want to, because there's a many different, I do a bunch of different shows at ESPN. So I'm on Around the Horn, which is everybody gets a turn to give a take. That's not a debate show. Nope. I've done First Take, which is an de- argument show. It's usually two dudes arguing and a woman in the middle. My favorite is when you're on Highly Questionable. Okay. That's a different, very different kind of show. Yeah. There's takes, but there's also a lot of goofiness. Yeah, it's just straight up stupid fun. Yes. Yes. So you want to do that? No, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what I would want to do. What I like about sports, what gets me super pumped is like when— you can figure out how someone's doing something wrong or like there's yes. some trend, yeah. right? Which is why I can talk to Kevin Clark all day long about football because I'm like, yes, this yes. is the shit I want to know. When you feel like you've unlocked something, you're like, oh, I understand. Like all of these teams are doing this. Wow, like play action really works and teams that run play action seem to be have successful offenses and like it unlocks that part of your brain where you're sort of able to see the matrix or whatever, see beyond just watching a single game. You can kind of understand a larger force that's driving success. Correct. That's what you like. And like besides, you know, having played sports, but that has sort of nothing to do with it. I think that there's some tangible way that allows me to better understand the things that like are meaningful to me in whatever I do in my life, right? So I try to find some correlation to, you know, a team running the RPO or something yeah. like that because I'm like, oh, that took some bravery to go against the grain to do it this way. And what I see in sports as patterns are people that have a hunch, but it's based on data and they do their work. And what is shown to me time and time again is that cultural intuitions are fucking stupid. Yes. In sports. Totally. <laughs> Norms, too. I mean, that's what makes the Patria— What's what makes them so successful, though, is that they don't give a shit about norms. They don't give a shit about what people have been doing forever. They'll take the, like, four-foot-two running back and squirt him through the pilots. Right. Or they'll change their game plan from game to game because they have— there's no fealty to just, like, this is the way things are supposed to be. Going to the Super Bowl, the reason the Patriots won the Super Bowl was the defense completely changed everything they had done the entire season. They're like, oh, yeah, you guys think we're going to run man because we always run man? Nope, fuck that. We're going to run zone. And the Rams were shooketh. And because Belichick can do that, it makes me think his self-awareness must be so fucking high. Yeah. And that's what I admire about it. It was like, wait, he can, like, swallow his pride and his ego. Right, yeah. And do the ugliest thing possible to win. Yes. Right? Within, like, he's not cheating. No, It's in the framework. Okay, he has potentially cheated in the past. But, but, (laughs) No, but you're you're totally right. I mean, it is, oh, okay, the whole offense is, the NFL is going with these high-octane offenses. Everyone's running three wide receivers. We're going to run out, you know, 20 running backs, and it's going to get ugly. And 
I thought it was the best Super Bowl. I loved Did it. Did you? It was so ugly. I loved it. It was really ugly. It was so ugly because I saw what he was doing. I was like, this is fucking genius. I loved it the second time I watched it for the football nerd shit and watching, especially what they did on defense was incredible. Um, in real time, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to write about? Oh my God, what am I going to, because I was there and I, have to, I usually write after the game. But the second time I loved it. Can you drink beer? Are you drinking beer while you're writing? Um, Can you do this? I actually, How do you go to a sporting event and not like, I know, crazy. I know. You really want a beer too, especially if it's like a hot day. The Super Bowl is like cold, so I'm kind of like, eh, give or take. And I always, I always want a hot dog. Do you like hot dogs? I partake in hot dogs in games. So you can't have a hot dog? No, 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 no. I can have a hot dog, but so okay. For those who don't know, a lot of Koreans like myself really love processed meat. <laughs> <laughs> spam, spam all the way. Ah, oh, budae chicken. Like <laughs> fucking inject that into my veins. So like spam, hot dogs, whatever. I just, I just love it. But at football games, when you're writing about them, there's a press box and they'll put out like good food, like like sliders or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I just want a hot dog. So often I'll go into the concourse to buy my own hot dog and bring it back to the press box and I'll just house it in front of everyone because I just crave, because you don't really get to eat hot dogs in your normal day-to-day life. Like how often do you eat a hot dog? Can I ask you another question? Why do you have to go to the games? I actually think football games are the worst sporting events to go to unless it's like a college football game. That's true. I you can just rarely watch it go. At home. I rarely go to the games. So the stories I do, aside from the analysis and the TV stuff, which you certainly don't need to go to games to do, I do like profiles. And you definitely don't need to go to games most of the time for that. Like I do them in the summer for NFL players. I usually do one big NFL profile every summer. Last year was Jalen Ramsey. Year before it was Aaron Rodgers. You don't need to watch football to do that kind of stuff. Well, your profile about Jalen Ramsey, that was the one where he was just throwing shade at everyone. He just does that. <laughs> you could like point, you could, if you were just Jalen Ramsey, you could point to like a dog and he would shit talk the dog mercilessly and the dog would like cower. But yeah, I usually do like summer before that was like Vaughn Miller. But yeah, I don't really have to go to games for my day-to-day job, except for the Super Bowl. I always go to the Super Bowl and then I write off of it. And do you want to meet your sort of football heroes or is it better to be arm's distance? It's not better to be arm's distance, but for what I do in terms of like writing stories about them, it's really important not to be intimidated and to be like, this person puts their pants on one leg at a time, like you and me. And sometimes that's hard. Like the Rogers story I did a couple of years ago, he came to my house and that was extremely surreal. And he's a really normal person and he's like a normal sized human. And so that kind of made it feel normal. But there were moments where, like there was a moment where he got up and stood next to my TV and I was like, oh my God, I watch him on that TV. Oh. And so there are these moments where you're like, this is crazy. I'm like, like a God has entered the premises. But for the most part, I'm able to compartmentalize. Yeah, I don't know. Would you geek out? You know, like I I love John McEnroe, for instance. <laughs> I love him. And he's the patron saint of Momofuku. He really is. And... um there's other stories of how we have his art from his dad and all of this stuff. But the huh. one time I was in Madison Square Garden where I think it was during Lynn Sanity too. Oh, boy. And I was in an elevator and he was there. And I didn't say anything. You didn't I, say anything? Because I was like, everyone talks to him. Yeah. I want to not know him. You know what I mean? Yes. I want to maintain this image of like this. He's a saint in my life. I don't want to fuck it up if he turns right. out to actually be a fucking dick or whatever. The Often fuck. they do. Yeah, most of the athletes I meet are total jerks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that's another thing, right? Yeah, a lot of my job is like breaking through that, being like, okay, this person 
if they're a dick, it's because their life has made them that way or their interactions with other humans. Like, imagine being an athlete and being, like, treated like a zoo animal and then in public having people be weird to you and stuff. So I often find, like, how can I, like, find a way to, in the span of an hour— or however long I have, relate to this human so that I don't see them this way, that I see them as a person. I I, I kind of mostly want to like people, to be honest, but it can be tough. When I first started at ESPN, my very first day, I had a surreal experience where I was trying to look for the cafeteria or something, and it was really quiet. Have you been to our campus? I have. So, you know, it's like kind of weird and quiet. It's like a college campus. And I turn around. It's like, miss, are you lost? I'm like, I turned around. It's Jerome Bettis. Mm. And— who's like my height. And the first thing that flashes in my head is my dad just cussing and railing at him how much he hates the Steelers, how much he thinks they're cheaters because they cheated us out of the Super Bowl or whatever. And it's just so weird to like be eye to eye with a person and then have those sports memories flashing through your head. Do you think one of your roles as a journalist talking about these figures is like humanizing them in a way where fandom can be pretty toxic? Where like yeah. like fantasy football, I have to remind myself. I'm like, I can't talk horrible. Th- I can't say these horrible things that I want to say about this person because like, right. this person, just, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, look, athletes are not all great people. They're like any other industry. It's a mix of like shitty people and cool people and whatever. I mostly just try to understand them. I mean, what is it about human nature, particularly in American sports culture, where it feels like we can own them? It's because we relate to the team. You don't cheer for, even in the NBA, which is like supposedly more of a player-driven league, people root for teams primarily, especially in the NFL because of the, everything in the NFL is dictated by the cap. If it was an uncapped sport, our attitudes towards the athletes would be totally different. But, you know, like the saying, you root for the jersey, it's true, you root for a team. So people always say, wow, it's so weird how NFL fans relate to owners over players. That's not true. NFL fans don't like owners. They're just rooting for the team. And what's best for the player is usually not what's best for the team. It's very rare that those things line up, right? Because if you root for an NFL team, you want your team to underpay players. That is good for the team. So I think it's just the way the sport is structured. It's not like some evil— I mean, there are definitely racial, socioeconomic dynamics that exacerbate those things, for sure. But by and large, I think it's just because it's a capped sport and people root for teams. You know, when I started cooking professionally, I just didn't watch sports for a while. Really? I would read about it. And that's how I still actually follow sports. Um, Weird, actually. I have more free time to watch sports, but I still would rather read about it. Even football? (laughs) Even football. It's weird. Uh I I watch Red Zone now, but I just—there's just something about when I was unplugged for like 10 years, literally cooking— that I was like, I don't give a shit about any of this stuff anymore. Really? It was like not meaningful, but the stories were always meaningful to me. Yes. Underdog is what I love most in sports. Yeah. And it's funny now when I have the time to look at all this stuff, it's still like, I only think in the world of sports. I don't even think in a world of food. I actually think in a world of sports analogies almost all the time. Almost exclusively. And you like yeah. those stories. That's so interesting that your love of it is not, it's driven more by storytelling and— these narratives and these characters rather than actually just— well, I'll give you an example. Watching. How many more half-court shots can you see? Yeah, right. right. It's just you like, get, oh, okay, here again. Here and after a while, with all the great sporting events that are, have been aired, like, you're not going to be moved that much. How many more game-ending throws can Aaron Rodgers throw? You're going to be like, I can't believe you did that. I mean, I'm still going to do that. <laughs> you are, but still, like, 
what's more amazing to me is like to understand how that all happened. Right. The storylines. Like yeah. To me, yeah. that's way more fascinating. And of course, I'll watch the game just like anyone else if I if I want to. But sports to me has almost always been about you the like the lines. expertise aspect. Well, but you. also the the what I like like for instance, you. I, I want to ask you this: you cover the NFL. I I don't know how you can remain so maybe you're not calm about the intense stupidity from general managers and teams in general in the NFL, right? Like, how do you not just yell at them? Well, I I have an interesting place in the NFL ecosystem in that I'm not a beat reporter and I kind of move on from story to story, aside from the analysis, which is a whole other thing. So I'll just burn guys to the ground because— when you're a beat reporter, it's, it's difficult to do that, right? Because then you have to go back to the locker room. You've got sources or whatever. That's not really my gig. So I have it a little bit easier, I think, than some of my peers. I can say whatever I think about most stuff that happens in the NFL. For me, I get asked more often, like, well, how do you cover the league with the, con- the concussions and, the, and all of the terrible things the league has done in that space? And uh, that is a very—that's a real ethical quandary— I've always felt like as long as I'm honest about it internally and like shine light, whether it's domestic violence or I want to be the person who talks about it and rails on them and is honest about it um, while I'm covering it. And do you ever feel bad when you just eviscerate someone for a decision they've made? Because that's like the, to me, the the weird thing about sports journalism is that you can be almost like a crazy sociopath, just destroying people. Yeah. And people like that. It's weird. Yeah. That's not really like my MO with the takes and stuff. I don't think, I'm not the person who they're going to clap, Mina comes, destroyed, you know, <laughs> Benton Collins or whatever, the worst deal of the century. Like that's not really my tone, I suppose. Um, but I know, I've said things and then met people who were, did not like the things I said. I mean, we had the draft show, I think I told you about, and uh, I was shitting on picks and there were like scouts who were like, hey, you didn't like our pick. You know, I mean, it's just kind of like. Was that weird for that? Yeah, it is, but I think people respect intellectual honesty and if you're if your criticism is coming from a place of like real analysis and work and you're not just trying to flame people to get attention, people ultimately respect that. Cuz that's what I always try to compare to the culinary world when you get reviews and such because I think it's becoming a little bit more like that. Like the hot t- Dude, Definitely sport, I, everything's becoming more like sports television politics, yeah. like so it wouldn't surprise me. So I try to understand what's going on, at least on criticism in one end, by yeah. trying to unravel the hot takeness of sports. Because I'm like, what I always try, because I've been in the, on the receiving end of just being eviscerated. And like, I'm always like, what gives a journalist the moral authority to do such a thing? Right. I think it's less about moral authority and more about, did they put in the work here? Like, is this actually coming from an honest place of thought and work and critique? Or is it about doing the hot take to get attention? Because I almost hate the word hot take because it, it always connotes like laziness to people. A hot take doesn't have to be lazy. A hot take can be smart, but so often they're not. So why is it that it's pretty much the only form of sports TV now is opinion? Success of PTI and yeah. Around the Horn. Well, but like, I love those shows though. They're different because they're, like, they're constructive in a way. I think a lot of that is the uh, effect of the internet because there's so much stuff you would traditionally get on linear television that you can now get from the internet highlights, right? We still do a lot of that for sure. But once that becomes sort of commodified, it's like, okay, well, what can we do that's different that people like? It's not just playing the same stuff you can just see on the internet. 
I mean, like, Highly Questionable is not a hot take show, right? You mentioned that earlier. Like, it's, we give our opinions, but. But that's why I like it. Yeah. It's freaking really brilliant in how it's subversive, right? Uh, and you're not the only one who likes it. I think people like a respite from the takes a little bit and the debate. There's definitely no debate on that show. It's more like Weekend Update where you kind of go back and forth. The interplay is more comedic than anything. So people are looking for that, too. So what's sports journalism look like in the next 10 years? Well, if I knew that, I'd be president of ESPN. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I—so I have a football podcast, which I'm going to shamelessly plug right now. Yeah, it's with called, your dog. It's called The Mean Guy Show featuring Lenny. And my approach to that is to be serious about football, but to not take anything else seriously, especially—I mean, I fucking co-host it with my dog— is he really in the? He asked a question at the end, <laughs> and so at the end, I always ask guests five questions, and he, I asked the fifth one in his voice. I have like a voice I do for him, which is like chill, and it's always a rude question, like a sort of like salty question, which is very chill when it's like someone I know, but when it's like Matt Hasselback, the whole time I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm gonna have to ask him a question in this dog voice at the end of this, and I have to work up the courage to do it, and then I'm gonna lose his respect. So. It is a little bit of a troubling device. But but to go back to your question about sports journalism, I, I, what I like is really analytical. I like the things you like. I like people explaining to me like these weird codes that explain— I like to have the code cracked. But I also don't like sports journalism that takes itself really seriously. And I, I, I prefer things that do both of those things at once. I think this—we're at the ringer. Like, they do a great job of that here, too. And do you think that— sports teams, particularly like, say, basketball, I think it's ahead in terms of analytics and football. Have they overcorrected where it's just all analytics? No, I think there's, like, been a lot of concern. Certainly not football yet, but um, in basketball and baseball. I think there's some concern that the way the teams are run and the coverage of them, oh, the nerds are running it now. It's just not really true. Because of that sort of, like, the nerds running it and the bro-ness of football— is that why, ultimately, that the NFL is lagging behind and modernizing how it views and judges talent and builds teams? I think if the NFL lags behind in areas like technology or whatever, embracing social media, progressivism, it's because the NFL is a thousand times bigger than everything else. And people don't understand that. Explain. People, dude, the NFL is America. Do you know how many people watch the Super Bowl? Over 100 million, okay? The average— NBA game gets a fraction, a fraction, playoff game. And I love the NBA, but I'm just being real. Like, it's not apples to apples at all. It's apples and oranges. Like, the NFL, it's interesting to me. It's become this sort of um, mirror for a lot of cultural debate in America. We certainly saw that with the Colin Kaepernick thing, right? That's because the NFL is America. The the NBA is is much younger, demographically less white. You know, it's much more progressive because its audience is that way. The NFL audience is so massive and so bifurcated. Like, if you polled NFL fans on Colin Kaepernick, it would directly mirror the politics of America. It was like a 50-50 split because it's so big. It's the giant elephant in the room. And as a result, on the stuff we're talking about, like technology or politics, it moves slowly because it's so massive. Um, And yes, the leadership is also, I think, more conservative, the ownership— than the NBA, and that also causes some of it. But I think people just forget how big it is compared to every other sport. Do you think then someone like Dave Gettleman, the GM of the Giants, you can like, because of his (laughs) allergic reaction to anything new, 
you could sort of pigeonhole him into the kind of person he is, the things he likes to eat, the politics he holds, <laughs> the viewpoints. You know, actually though, you'd be surprised. Like I, there are NFL owners who, if I told you their politics, you would think that they're like super conservative, whatever, and they're not at all. They just don't talk about it. Um, it's an interesting mix. There are coaches in the NFL who are like super like. Uh, like Steve Kerr? <laughs> they're more like Steve Kerr, yeah, but they just don't talk about it or whatever in the same way. So I think actually it's a little bit more, like locker rooms are much more diverse in the NFL than people think. But the culture it's is— It's not any given Sunday? It's—actually, <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, it's so funny. You know the show Ballers? Yeah. Everyone always makes fun of it. It's so realistic. Really? Like a lot of the plot lines and the characters are like really similar to people. <laughs> I bet it. Well, I got to watch Ballers again. I, I fell off of it a couple of seasons ago, but. Well, when you're watching, I was like, oh, this is pretty accurate. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, that's a guy. Yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, I've seen that kind of thing happen. Yeah. The, but anyways, yeah, the, the NFL, it, it's just so big. I don't know. It's, it has all kinds. I'm positive. I always say this when we do podcasts that are not totally food related. And I hear this from people. They're like, I had no idea what you were talking about. Um, <laughs> you're talking about baseball, football, analytics. So this is going to be a weird one for people because it's a lot of Korean history. Yeah, we Han, talked about Korean stuff for like 30 lot, minutes. A lot, of, a lot of Korean <laughs> stuff. So if you're listening and you're still here, congratulations. Because <laughs> then we just went into a wormhole of sports and sports analogies. And if, you have, if we haven't lost you yet, we are most certainly going to lose you right now. Because oh, no. let's go into the NFL draft. Oh. We'll get you out of here. Yes. Why do you love it so much? Okay. If you're an NFL fan, I don't know what the percentage is of 31 out of 32. Most of the time, you didn't win. Most of the time, your team was unsuccessful. The NFL draft is that juncture in the season when, or in the offseason, NFL season never ends, when you have hope, when you're like, everything could turn around tonight. We could get the quarterback of the future. We could get the pass rusher that elevates our defense. Like, the future is wide open on the, the night of the draft. And I, I love that, like, hope and enthusiasm that permeates Because you come fans. from a, a recent winning feeling of the, the Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. You got Russell Westbrook. I mean, Russell Wilson in the third round. We chose RG3. Congratulations. Yeah. We should have had Russell Westbrook in Seattle, too. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> oh, um, man. Not gonna get that's into a whole that. other story, I have a too. weird relationship with the Thunder, too, where I'm like the rare Sonics fan that actually likes them, and that's like super taboo in Seattle. But How was uh, Howard Schultz ever going to run America when he couldn't keep the Seahawks? Dude, you should have— So I follow, <laughs> obviously, a lot of Seattle sports Twitter. When that was going down, when like he—, he went on Twitter and immediately got ratioed. Seattle sports Twitter was lighting him up. Like, he is the most hated man. <laughs> it's not even close in Seattle. Um, but, yeah, so did the draft, though, it combines everything. It combines, like, hope. It combines nerdy nerd stuff, like numbers and analysis. And I love all that stuff. Um, it kind of— this it's like new blood, right? I love that like injection of like new great. You like stories. It's like new stories, new characters that come. It would be like an episode of Game of Thrones where all of a sudden like a hundred new characters show, which would be really troubling for Game of Thrones. Did you go to Indianapolis for the the combine? Yeah, uh, I did not go this year. I did a football panel at MIT Sloan instead, ah, but I will be at the, the draft. You went to the fancy fans yeah. conference. The football panel is like because analytics and football are like kind of behind other sports, so it's always it's always a little bit. 
harder to fill out. So you love the, it's like a, a new day. It's like a phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're a shit team, like, what's better than the draft? Yeah, well, that was for a Washington Redskins football team fan. That was for the past 20 years, our Super Bowl. The offseason was our Super Bowl. And the trades, and I just, I love it. I fucking love the draft so much. I love Mel Kuyper so much. Yeah. It's amazing. But I always wonder how many players fell through the cracks. As great as the scouting is and comprehensive. Sure. And then I start thinking, how many players could have been great if people just saw things a little bit differently, you know? Right. Well, I mean, there's very famous undrafted free agents throughout the year. Seattle, in fact, during their run, famously landed on a few really great undrafted free agents. Doug Baldwin, the who was also part Asian. Oh, yeah. Part Filipino. And he embraces it, too. So he was undrafted, and Seattle would, you know, teams compete for undrafted free agents, and they would advertise, hey, we've had a lot of UDFAs, like, come to Seattle. We'll give you a, we'll give you a shot. We'll look at you fairly because— you're right. A lot of those guys do fall through the cracks. And truth be told, the reason why I will still love the NFL as much as I love the NBA or other sports is because even though you're still technically sort of a genetic freak to even qualify as a free agent to play on a football team and not get drafted, you can prove all the analysts and pundits wrong, right? And that's why I fucking love Tom Brady. I love him. And it pains me. You don't understand how—I don't like saying that out loud. You know what I mean? I hate that about myself so much. I mean, I get what you're saying, though. Six-round draft pick. Yeah. Right? But it, like, he's you super normal-looking in real life. Have you met him? I have. He's like normal, right? He looks just like a dude. Big white dude. He's not jacked at all. But you can't ever have that storyline. I mean, you, mean, like, you can't ever have that storyline in basketball. Yeah. You can sort of have it in, in baseball. Like Mike Piazza was like, oh, yeah. like a 47th-round draft pick. Two right. is like three exactly. feet tall. Yeah. But— in football, you can still do that. Right. Yeah. Right? Like the running back for the Denver Broncos. I uh, can't remember his Philip name. Philip Lindsay. Philip Lindsay. Fucking yeah. love that was story. He undrafted? He was undrafted. Yeah. Went to Boulder. Yeah, I think he like lived in his parents' basement the entire first season. And that's the stuff that I'm looking for. Is like <laughs> who's, it's not just the free agents. It's like, why did someone get knocked down five rounds? Not because of drug use or anything. It's just because like, they had a slow 40 time. You know what I mean? Right. Like the NFL is full of stories of people proving people wrong. And that's the shit I love the most. So you love, I mean, Kyler, aside from being Asian, the fact that he's short, the fact that if he's drafted where he's expected to be, he'll be the first quarterback ever drafted the first round at that height. Yes. I have been rooting for him just because he is short, but I don't like Bill Bidwell. Or uh, Michael Bid, yeah, Michael Bidwell. Yeah, you know, so he was a graduate yeah. of my high school, and I hated my high school. I didn't, I didn't like it so much. <laughs> Wait, he's not from Arizona. <laughs> he went to Georgetown Prep. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So whenever the Cardinals would come play the Redskins, they would always be tickets for. Oh, that's funny. My high school. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And he's like a giant Trump supporter, so I couldn't. I couldn't. Do it. Um, I'm rooting for Kyler too. I, th- I mean, the height thing. Like Wilson obviously is short. He's under six feet. And that the style of play in the NFL has made it easier for quarterbacks that height to just play. Um, there's like increasingly open-mindedness to that. I think that the issue with Kyler to me, to put on my draft scout hat for a minute, is less his height and more his frame. As an RG3 supporter, you know how much frame can mm. matter. And it's not about whether you run. It's about how you run and the way you get hit. And <laughs> sorry to bring back those memories. So 
I think that would be my only concern with him, but he, I think he's phenomenal. Do you think we're ever going to have an Asian? Not that it matters, right? I want to see the world where it doesn't matter, but like if there was just any athlete, like let's just say if there was an NBA player or an NFL starting quarterback that was Japanese or Chinese, like I think I would stop everything. Sell (laughs) all of my worldly possessions, buy Winnebago and just become fan club number one and just that would be my idol. Forever. Would, what, would that be bigger than Linsanity if there was that an Asian quarterback? That truly was the best two weeks of my life. Were you, I, like, where right were you? Up there. I was were in, you New in New York. I think about that all the time. It was unbelievable. I remember. So I was in New York too. And, you know, I don't care about the Knicks or whatever. And he's not even Korean. But I I, I literally, I remember just texting everyone being like, meet me in K-Town. <laughs> we're going to circle. <laughs> and like, figure, trying to find a place to just watch. Because it was just like, it took hold of the entire city. And, and that part of the city. And it was like, we have to be part of this. It was the best. It really was the best. Like yeah. when I, I don't say that lightly as to how memorable it was for me because I'm really searching for any athlete. To get behind. To get behind that looks like us. To find someone like you on TV or me as a chef. Like yeah. the, the one of the last fucking things for Asian American culture is sports. Taylor said that. Taylor Rapp, the safety I was talking about, he, he, I had him on my pod a little bit. And he said, first of all, one, part of the reason he wasn't recruited, he thinks, by like heavily recruited coming out of high school was because he was Asian. Like guys would look at him and be like, really? Like safety? Because he's really Asian looking. And now he really wants to be a role model. He wants like young Asian kids who play football to look at him and think that they could do it. If Kyler Murray went on stage and said— or something to Roger Goodell, would you get a Kyler t- Murray tattoo no, on your I face? I would fucking cry. <laughs> I would fucking cry. I really would. I'd be like, I'd be in total disbelief. I would Kyler, fucking not believe it. that's all it's going to take. Yeah. Just one word. It's so crazy it would to be, me. It would be probably the biggest moment for Koreans of the last like 20 years <laughs> in America. <laughs> I mean, like I'm really stretching my, my love of like anyone Asian, like the player on the Washington, uh, I mean, Gonzaga Bulldogs, like. Oh, wait, he's really Japanese too. Yeah, he's really fucking Japanese. Super. He's more Japanese than American. And Osaka, the tennis player. She's dope. Yeah, She's so dope. it's it's there and I'm very excited about all of the different faces that are in sports. I mean, I was excited when Taylor was like, yeah, like I've got, fucking these tattoos I'm like okay like he's not just he's not the guy we're like Wikipediaing furiously to figure out he's in he right. wants to, it's like the Korean ta- flag tattoo it's like he chose us I know I can't believe that I choose just, us I can't I, I just us. want I just that would be my dream <laughs> I swear to God that's okay. my death wish I want that to happen <laughs> this, we need to get this message to Kyler like if I was the NBA like head of like development I'd be spending so much money trying to in find China. to Oh my god! And Koreans, crazy. Koreans, we produce basketball players, but they're always like seven foot four, or they have a glandular problem. <laughs> I want, I want someone that is like a do, swing do, man, do you six get, foot five. But do you get behind like the Korean lady golfers, the ice skaters? Like when you turn on the Olympics, are you like, hey, archer, archery's on? I have a lot of thoughts about that. Koreans are <laughs> speed skating. So gifted at sports where you need to indulge in your Han. Oh, yeah, and do one thing over and over. Over and over. That is like it. That's Your thoughts are 100% correct. <laughs> to, to, which is also why I was talking to Sean Foley. He used to be Tiger Woods' swing coach. And he, he's, I always joke because he has Korean, you know, golfers that are like learning how to be American and yeah. all these things. And I'm like, dude, first thing you need to do is like deprogram him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they're never going to play well under pressure. Because there's something about the Korean mentality 
of Han and all that other shit that I think prevent you from uh, sustained excellence over a period of time. So I feel like your calling is not to take my job and do sports takes, but to start a sports academy in Korea <laughs> and breed the next generation of Korean athletes. That would be bad news for Korean people. <laughs> <laughs> like a Real Madrid style, but just you are the— God. I, I could be like that guy, Sonny, uh, that did uh, the AAU for Adidas. I could just start that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just picturing you like going around the neighborhoods of Seoul with like sneakers, shadily carrying around bags of money. Hey, 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 yeah. you look tall. But maybe, maybe that's how it got, has to happen. We'll see. Anyway, I, I'll shut the fuck up. Let's, uh, let's get you out of here. We'll get some lunch. We talked about a lot of random stuff. You made it to the end of this. You will receive a reward. Well, that was my conversation with Mina. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Catch her on all the other media outlets that she's on, on ESPN and her podcast and her NFL takes. I'm certainly going to be following her and texting her for all of her fantasy football information because it does take over my life when football season starts. But uh, I wanted to get to a couple Ask Dave at Major Domo Media questions. Thank you again. So again, if you have any questions, email them at askdave at majordomomedia.com. The first question is from David Markey. As a chef, how does your experience as a guest at other restaurants differ from a regular person? Well, Dave, that's a loaded question. I'll try to answer it quickly. I think first and foremost, if you're in the industry as a front of the house or back of the house, you want to not say anything, but like you sort of know there are telltale signs, whether it's the burns on your arms or how you order, quite frankly. And if you order really well in a restaurant that is ambitious or popular, that's not like the Cheesecake Factory, for instance. There's nothing wrong with the Cheesecake Factory. I love it. But like, I'm just thinking about like Contra, Wild Air in New York, or if you went to like Bestia in downtown Los Angeles, there are restaurants there where if you order well, someone might know that you're a cook, because I won't go into that today, but if you're a cook, you know what I'm talking about. You just order better than anyone else. So you try to take care of your own because it's a show of mutual respect. And taking care of your own, you get more food. Maybe you'll get a round of drinks. Doesn't always happen, but you know it's a, it's a PX ticket, which in French, I guess, means person extraordinaire. And you just sort of soigne the table, which means to take care of them uh, very well. And as I sort of dined at restaurants, that never really happened, you know, as a young middling line cook. But sometimes it happened. I remember eating with a bunch of younger cooks and we went to Danielle and this is like 2001 and Danielle came out to the dining room. We never told anyone that we we're cooks and he comped the entire meal for us because he knew that we had saved up our money and we wanted to taste the sort of the glory that was Danielle Balud under Alex Lee, the chef there at the time. And that was something I'll never forget. And, I'll, and when I worked at Kraft uh, sort of the year before that, I worked uh, as an intern. They comped my meal as well. Comping is something that doesn't always ha- happen and can be awkward at times. But when done well, it can actually move people to tears. And I'll never forget the generosity of Danielle Balud. So it can happen from a drink to just an acknowledgement of the industry, to a full comp meal. Again, that doesn't happen that often, but you sort of save it for special occasions. And it's not just me being treated differently at at a restaurant. I do believe that, or believe hope, that most restaurants take care of 
the other people that work so hard in the hospitality industry. But as a chef and as I've gotten to be more well-known, my experience, I think, is very different because I get a lot of food sent my way. And I'm, I'm very lucky, but it's different. I, I, it's weird. I never really talked about it publicly, but sometimes it can be too much food and you want to eat it all. And that's the problem. And, and when I first went out to dinner with my wife, I didn't really take her to restaurants because sometimes it's just too much food. And I don't like talking about this because you can sound like a fucking pretentious asshole because all you want to do is be respectful and be thankful. But sometimes like you just want to eat like a regular person. So sometimes you get too much. And uh, I think if you talk to food critics or if you get the chance, they'll all tell you that when they are in a restaurant and they get noticed, things are a little bit different. And that's no different than say like, at your job and your like friend comes in or whatever, like you give some special treatment. And uh, the reality is in theory, everyone should be treated the same. And we do try to maintain that across the board. So I think the best restaurants don't do anything different for anyone. And I love that because a person that eats at like 10 PM at the bar should get the same treatment as someone that's sitting at like the main, like nicest seat in the dining room. So uh, I think this is a much larger conversation. I won't talk any more about it, Dave, uh, Dave Markey. So thank you for that question. But my experience as a, as a guest at other restaurants ultimately is the same as anyone else's. And that's what I hope for. Uh, and if I can't get that, I just like going to Chinatown or getting delivered just like anyone else. The second question comes from Luis Felipe. Have you ever eaten in a Brazilian restaurant or had Brazilian cuisine? What do you think of it? Chefs like Alex Atala are showing the world that Brazilian cuisine is not that far behind other Latin American ones, such as Mexican and Peruvian, even though those countries had the benefit of large ancient civilization, knowledge, and culture. Well, Luis Felipe, thank you for that. I love Brazilian cuisine. I love Brazilian culture. I haven't been in a few years, but I love Sao Paulo and Rio is amazing. I think that Brazilian food, besides the steakhouse, which I love and want to explore more of in terms of the, the fogo de chow and the churrasca as a way to eat steak, the cuisine itself is a melding of indigenous people, local ingredients, and obviously from Europe. So it's a real hodgepodge of a variety of different things. And it's highly international. What I love most about Brazilian food is the fact that there's a sort of significant Asian population, at least when I go to Sao Paulo. I haven't traveled throughout the country, so I know very little, and Brazil is a very large nation. But what I love most about Brazil is that food's delicious, right? First and foremost, from getting a mortadella sandwich to the coldest fucking beers you've ever had, the times I spent, besides eating in the traditional restaurants like Alex's Restaurant and his other more casual spot, that's amazing because it's about showing the Amazonian produce and, and, and bounty and also like the culinary heritage of Brazil and, and delicious things like feijoada. And um, the thing that I found most interesting is walking the streets and going to places that serve pastels, which is basically like a fried dumpling that's been flattened. It's similar to an empanada, you would guess. You see very old Chinatowns and very old Korean populations. In fact, there's a large Korean contingent in Brazil and you can see how that food has evolved. So that pastel might be full of Korean mandu or Chinese dumpling farce. It's again, what I always joke as Blade Runner food, left to their own devices and left to sort of evolve over time, delicious things will evolve with other delicious things and turn into something that 
is different than anything that's Korean or anything that might be from Brazil. And what I love most about Brazil is that it is like happening in real time. However, all these generations of immigrants, you get this sort of thread of new foods that are being created. And I really encourage people to discover that besides the national beautiful dishes. And there's tons of delicious meats and manioc flour everywhere. And another thing that I think that Brazils do a lot is they fucking melt cheese on so many delicious things. But as a whole, I'm not going to tell you that I know much about Brazilian cuisine, even though I've been there probably like half a dozen times. It's just too dense of a country. It's too, it's got a massive history that I will never be able to appreciate just being a diner. But I will tell you that I love Brazilian food and I'm very happy for all the chefs there that are getting the recognition. And, um, you know, I wonder though, can Brazil food transport itself outside of Brazil? Because so much of what makes Brazil food to me delicious is the fact that it comes from, you know, the ingredients of Brazil. So maybe we'll get Alex on or some of those other chefs from Brazil that are getting more national recognitions on the podcast soon. Uh, I've talked enough. Uh, I'll shut up again. Hopefully you enjoy the conversation with Mina. Continue to send emails to askdave at majordomomedia.com. I will be happy to answer them. Thank you for sending them in. Please give us five stars on however you rate this podcast, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. Uh, Thanks again. Stay tuned for next week. Appreciate it, guys.